Welcome to the Governance Podcast, hosted by the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Mark Pennington and I'm the Director of the Centre. I'm very pleased to have with me today Professor Prakash Kashwan, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Connecticut. His work focuses on the political economy of institutions, environmental governance and environmental justice. Among other works, he's the author of Democracy in the Woods, published with Oxford University Press in 2017. Prakash spoke to the Centre um, in an excellent seminar back in February, which was entitled Beyond the Romance of Ideologies, which looked at the relevance of the Ostrom's work to various environmental challenges. That was a, a very fruitful event, um, a really engaging seminar, which we did try to record on Zoom, but unfortunately uh, the recording failed. So we thought we would have Prakash back to do a podcast uh, to go over some of the, the themes that he discussed in that seminar back in February. So Prakash, it's very good to have you with us here today. And thanks very much for taking the time out. And hopefully this recording is going to work. Right. Thank you, Mark, for having me again. Uh, and it's, it's, it was such a um, wonderful interaction around the event. And I'm so glad that we are able to get into this uh, fresh round of conversations. Great, so, so let's, let's, let's start off. And um, really, I'd like to start by going back to the presentation that you gave uh, to us back in February. So in, in that presentation, which was called Beyond the Romance of Ideologies, you gave a very comprehensive account of the Bloomington School approach to understanding the role that institutions play in helping to address or in hindering responses to various governance challenges. I wonder if you could start off today by just summarizing what you think is distinctive about the Bloomington School approach to political economy and what sets it apart from other schools that have looked at similar or related questions. Right, so let's start from what the Bloomington School is popularly known for. As the good folks at the Nobel Prize Committee put it, um, Lynn was awarded the prize for demonstrating how common property can be successfully managed by user associations. The second aspect of Lynn's work that is often mentioned is the design principle for the sustainable governance of the commons. And the third aspect that is often mentioned is the institutional analysis and development framework, or it's popularly known as IAD framework. However, the IAD framework, the design principles, and the findings about the feasibility of community-based governance of the commons, these are various products of an underlying theoretical foundations of the Bloomington School. And, and my argument uh, in, in that talk was mainly that the, these theoretical foundations are often not adequately discussed specifically in the context of the commons, because the commons work is often you know, known for the design principles, the IED framework and so forth. So the underlying theoretical foundations of the institutional analysis that um, you know, uh, makes the behavioral theory of user behavior in the commons, that has not been talked about and has not been uh, analyzed very much 
beyond the, the community of workshop scholars. Because, you know, that community actually takes that for granted. And it's mm -hmm. not, you know, often carefully uh, and clearly explained uh, to the general public. Now, what is unique about um, the Bloomington approach to the behavioral uh, theory is that um, it takes the various features of biophysical and sociocultural context very, very serious. Now, the focus on context, as well as the empirical research for studying actual user behavior is unique because, um, you know, in, in, in the mainstream economics and political science, you always assume what the user preferences are based on their rational self-interested uh, behavior. And then you expect to see those behaviors and any deviation from behavior is supposed to be sort of, you know, uh, a, a sort of a, uh, a side problem. It's not the main theoretical problem, but the main theoretical focus of the Bloomington School is to understand the actual user behavior in particular context and the IAD framework um, that, you know, allows us to do that. Now, interestingly, both the mainstream neoliberal or neoclassical economics, as well as the Marxist framework, shares this same idea of a prefigured framework, which is which takes the user behavior for granted. Economists are expect one kind of user behavior, and Marxists expect another kind of user behavior. But the analytically speaking, both these approaches have a framework that sort of predetermines what the users are supposed to do under a master narrative of either a, a self-interested rational human behavior or the behavior of the proletariat under a particular kind of capitalist system. So, um, so Bloomington School differs from both of these frameworks in the sense that it takes the local context very seriously and it actually models the actual user behavior as opposed to sort of going by what the theory tells us should be the user behavior. That's interesting. I mean, if, 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 if effectively what you're saying there is that, um, in a way, um, the kind of rational choice theory you have in neoclassical economics and Marxist approaches, they're both a kind of structuralism, which right. gives a kind of predictive right. to the way that people behave, that people in a certain situation, you can predict directly what their behavior will be. You can predict, for example, that they won't overcome a commons problem. Right. Um, or perhaps that they will if you've got the structural parameters identified. Right. What you're saying is that the Austrians depart from that view. I think it, it's worth exploring that in relation to, because they are often seen as rational choice theorists. Right. And rational choice theory is associated with, you know, what's usually described as methodological individualism. And it strikes me what you're saying would be compatible with a view which is saying that the problem with rational choice theory is it's actually not sensitive enough to the context within which rationality is formed. Right. Absolutely. Um, both to cultural factors, but also even at a certain level, you could say it's not individualist enough because it doesn't understand necessarily what's in the heads of some of the actors that are directly in the ground facing a particular situation. Would that be fair? Yes, and I think you know uh, your framing of this, uh, the neoclassical, uh, neoliberal economics way of thinking about individuals as structuralist is actually very instructive and insightful. And similarly, you know, of course, Marxists are known for structuralism. Mm -hmm. um, but so the the Bloomington School still retains the fundamental focus on methodological individualism. Mm -hmm. 
without actually um, sort of you know sacrificing a nuanced analysis of the context within which individuals behave. So, and and I think that's what makes the, the Bloomington School distinctively different from uh, these two other dominant uh, schools. So that behavioral outcomes are studied at the individual levels. Um, even though as opposed to the mainstream behavioral theories of economics and political science, the Bloomington School uh, takes both the features of socioeconomic, biophysical and cultural context seriously, but it pays careful attention to the ways in which individuals make and enforce decisions uh, regarding uh, you know, some kind of collective action, whether it is for the commons or for the provision of urban public goods and so forth. Now, the, 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 this anchoring of a uh, Lynn's work and, and the work of other workshoppers in a nuanced framework of methodological individualism, it lends a kind of analytical discipline that you don't see in either of those two other approaches. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, the, the way I see what they're doing, and you, you know, give me a, correct me if I'm wrong, the way I see, I, way I see what they're doing is that they, they, they subscribe to a, a, slight, a looser notion of rationality than you have in rational choice theory. It's more of a bounded rationality view that the actors are fallible. Um, and because the actors are fallible, in a sense, they are more entrepreneurial agents in the sense that they use the resources that are around them in creative ways, that the culture, the local norms, the social capital, they have to sort of piece these things together to try to address collective action problems. And it's that element that introduces the sort of unpredictability, the fact that the theorist right. abstract rational choice models may not understand the way that the actors on the ground perceive what the choice uh, structure actually is that faces the agents. Right, absolutely. And, uh, the, and this is why this discussion is so fascinating because each of these core concepts that we have talked about, uh, rationality, methodological individualism, bounded rationality, they are, you know, at a broader level, they, they underlie uh, both the mainstream uh, mm -hmm. approaches to behavioral uh, analysis, as well as the Bloomington School, but they're used very differently. So yeah. even if we think about bounded rationality, right, so when mainstream economists or even, you know, new institutional economists such as Douglas North, when they use bounded rationality, they're only focusing on the constraints to do with limits to cognition, for example, mm -hmm. or lack of knowledge, for example, right? So, but they still maintain this notion that preferences are exogenous and they are prefigured. Mm -hmm. Now, if there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an article that Lynn wrote, I think in 2003, it's called a behavioral, it's called a toward a behavioral theory of uh, collective action. And in that article, Lynn shows how local cultural norms, as well as interactions between different users, where they, over time, they develop trust and relationships of belonging and trust and mutual uh, respect, these re relationships can alter preferences, right? So users that did not want to contribute to commons management in a pre-collective action situation, their preferences can be changed over time so that now they find it in their self-interested, in their bounded self-interest. But this bound is now set up by uh, a, a changed positive context, 
in the sense that now the community context makes the local collective action more viable, right? So the, their preferences have been changed to some extent. And so this is, you know, the, the economist uh, cannot model changes in preferences within such yeah. a short uh, span of time or within one particular situation. Well, arguably, it's not just a change in preferences that you're, you're talking about there. You're actually talking about changes in the nature of the actor almost, that by participating in certain circumstances, the character of the actor actually changes. Uh, it's, it, it's not just preferences, it's almost perceptions of, of the world and the way it functions and of other actors within that world that may change through interaction. Absolutely. And this is actually, so this reminds me, uh, we are doing some new work to, um, to create bridges between the Ostrom School of Commons work and some of the critical uh, scholarship on commons, which mm -hmm. you know, comes from other theoretical backgrounds. And so, for example, uh, Neera Singh's work in India, um, she has shown that users sort of start off by getting into forest protection because they think of self-interest. Uh, self and her work is focused mainly on women forest users. But she shows that over time, these interactions actually develop into more effective kind of relationship vis-a-vis -vis one another between the users, but also between the forest and users. And so she has this framework of effective ecologies, which, you know, interestingly starts off with some kind of a, a common situation, which is pretty much sort of rationally driven, but then it, it, it develops into a much different kind of uh, engagement between the forest and, and the users. And that's, that's, you know, so this is a beautiful example to show how both how, as you said, you know, users change over time because of these interactions, but also showing how the Ostrom work can be bridged with other kinds of theoretical arguments. If we are thinking about the individual uh, preferences and understandings and worldviews in a more nuanced way than we see in, in the mainstream. Well, it's interesting that you're mentioning, you know, really effectively the, the importance of communication and the problem with, um, you know, really stripped down forms of rational choice and game theory is that people are put into prisoner's dilemma games or other kind of games where they don't actually, by the very nature of the model, they're not allowed to or able to communicate with other actors. But actually, you know, if you're in real world situations where people have got the scope to engage in communication, the very active communication can, can change the structure of the game. And that seems to me a fundamental point that, that the Austrians are onto, but maybe, maybe perhaps they could sometimes have been more explicit in bringing that element out of what they were saying. Absolutely. In fact, the, the prisoner's dilemma argument was central to the, to the argument that Lynn made throughout her career. I mean, you know, of course, the 1990 book um, has an entire chapter devoted to these kinds of dilemmas and how it kind of traps the user in an analytical prison, so as to say, right? Uh, and, and so uh, I think this point was communicated uh, pretty strongly, but I think what happened was that um, the, the way in which Lynn's work was received in different communities. And I, you know, this is a point that we will come back to again uh, in, in some of the other discussions maybe. But they selectively took certain conclusions and implications of the work without always taking seriously the sort of foundations of the work, right? And that's been my argument that, you know, I think that's, that has not been talked about enough. 
and then the the other thing is that you know the focus on communications can sometime ignore the fact that you know these relationships uh, are built within a particular social world right so there's a there's a sociological and cultural dimension to the user interactions within the context of local commerce right so it's not just like out and out communication mm. as in you right um, but it's a richer engagement with the life worlds of these users in these particular local settings so one of the things you'd have to look at in those situations are relationships of power between different particular between different actors at the local level to understand you know what the incentives are the, the, the sort of cultural framings that are happening in different places and how that might vary from place to place right so um you know i think um the, the question of power has been um, an extremely important question in the context of the commons, which I and many, um, some other uh, workshoppers have been arguing that we need to pay more attention to. But um, that, that, that work is relatively recent. It's, it's come up within last you know, five to eight years uh, in some cases, uh, you know, uh, 10 years or so. But by and large, before this recent round of work about which we can talk at more length, uh, I, yes, I've argued that uh, the, the Bloomington School of Institutional Analysis and the Commons work has paid inadequate attention to the, the question of power, especially social and political power. Well, I, I'm going to come back to that in, in some of the other questions I'd like to ask you, because I think it is a very important area of inquiry that, as you say, it's uh -huh. starting to be developed, um, but at the moment it's perhaps underdeveloped. But before we do that, I wonder if you could just carry on along the line of thinking about um, Lynn Ostrom's work on, on, on the commons and on those kind of problems. So you made reference quite effectively, I felt, in your presentation to the fact that although she's often associated with this idea of um, extending the realm of bottom-up uh, community governance solutions to some of these issues, she was also very clear to say that people should avoid what she called the panacea trap. Right. So in the same way that private property isn't always the answer or state property isn't always the answer, she was also saying that uh, community governance isn't always the answer. And the IAD framework and the various design principles that she speaks about are an attempt to set out, as at least as I understand it, some kind of principle framework for trying to determine when these different solutions may or may not be appropriate uh, and how that varies according to um, the character of the resource, the character of the population, the kind of uh, relationships between formal and informal rules that there are in particular situations. Is, is that right? That's correct. So one of the most frequent references in Lynn's talks and conversations uh, around the, you know, the round table at the workshop was her warning uh, against falling into Panacea trap, right? And if you, if you've been uh, in a Lynn Ostrom seminar, you can sort of visualize her sort of literally jumping up up and down <laughs> as she would say some of these things you know and and you know she it's uh, it's funny how sometimes if someone 
said the state by mistake, she'll like jump three feet and say the state, the community, right? So she was, I mean, this is not just like one uh, particular argument, but there was an entire set of discursive tool that she had, tools that she had to sort of, you know, argue against any kind of vocabulary of, of you know, creating a monolithic understanding of anything, right? And so, um, uh, so she, she gave these warnings very frequently. For example, I mean, if you think about Garrett Hardin's uh, rather poorly conceptualized uh, arguments, they led him to advocate uh, privatization or uh, nationalization as the only means through which one could avoid the tragedy becomes. And again, that Lynn would argue that, that that was kind of a panacea thinking. So it's important to underline here that Hardin's argument itself was a sort of uh, panacea framework because yeah. he said these are the only things that can solve uh, the, the so-called so uh, tragedy of the commons. But as, as we talked about earlier, uh, many users of the design principle, they ended up, you know, whether they wanted it or not, or whether it was intentional or in, unintentional, it, it, and the design principle of the commons ended up being cited as sort of silver bullet instruments that, um, you know, if a community, it looks like a community meets the criteria outlined in design principles, mm -hmm. you know, this was sort of taken as a guarantee that they would manage their commons effectively. And of course, as we have talked about um, previously, you know, even some of the most fundamental and narrowly defined concepts, such as, you know, bounded rationality and methodological individualism, they were deployed in a very nuanced way, right? So workshop was about crafting everything, right? So you, you, mm -hmm. you would craft everything. And so compared to these finely and narrowly defined concepts, design principles are actually uh, quite blunt, right? So the, they are these kinds of indicator instruments that you use as a, as a means of sort of starting off your investigation into the management of commons. But because of the popular narrative around the design principles became as if, you know, this is sort of a formula to, you know, put some numbers into and churn out. And there've been, of course, statistical analyses of these kinds where you use design principle as a sort of variable generating, uh, you know, sort of mechanism because of that, there was, uh, there's been an impression that, um, you know, community-based solutions uh, uh, are sort of a panacea, right? And again, towards the end of um, Lynn's um, uh, work, uh, you know, her life, um, very well-lived life, she, she was actually focusing quite significantly on repeating again and again that community-based solutions are not a panacea because she started realizing that this was being portrayed as a as a as a panacea, um, and and so these kinds of the uh, uses of the design principles or the commons work in general, they tend to neglect or mention only in passing some features of political context, for uh, or sometimes they entirely you know sort of neglect these features. For example, if you think about government agencies throughout the global south, they have enormous power. They, they virtual, virtually own land. You know, and for, for example, in India, 22.5% um, of the land is quote unquote owned by forestry agencies because they are the legal owners of the land, not just the regulating agency. And so 
how would a local community mobilization and collective action differ in context where these government agencies at the local level, right? Not the Uncle Sam sitting in Delhi or mm -hmm. London, but local government agencies and local forest officials, what kind of power they wield in the, in the local uh, resource management settings. Once we account for that, our analysis of community-based uh, collective action changes very dramatically. Because then, you know, the context that we talked about that yeah. context is now fundamentally different from what you generally yeah. think of as the local natural yeah. resource management context. Well, I was, I, just reacting to what you were saying there, thinking about it, there's, a, there's quite a important methodological point there as well, isn't there? That um, what you're saying is that it, the design principles or the IAD framework shouldn't be seen as a kind of overly predictive framework that if you've got these factors in place, then um, a certain result will follow that will be falling into a sort of, um, although I think there are sort of positivist elements to a lot of the Ostrom's work, it will be falling into that kind of predictive, uh, scientistic almost form of positivism, where if you have these variables in place, these institutional variables, you will get X outcome. And what you're saying is that it's actually much more complex than that even, that the, seems to me you're almost saying that the predictive element has to be questioned. Would that be fair? Absolutely. I think, and then again, you know, Mark, this is a, a wonderfully instructive way of framing this, that, you know, instead of using design principles as a predictive tool, they were meant, I mean, you know, it's, it's actually written in the preface and the first chapter of governing the commons, mm -hmm. that they were meant as diagnostic tools. Now there's a difference between, right, using something as a diagnostic mm -hmm. tool. And, and if you, if you look at the the latter work of Lynn, uh, you know, the socio-ecological framework, the, 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 the word diagnostic is in the titles of some of those important articles that Lynn uh, authored or co-authored. And so I think if we use uh, the design principles as, as diagnostic tools, but then also remember that the way in which any of these design principles work in particular context will again have to be subjected to the context sensitivity that the IAD framework asks us to do, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to put each of these design principles within that particular context and then see how it works. So is that, is that, that sounds very similar to me to, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar, familiar with this, the, the sort of analytic narrative method that instead of um, sort of looking at variables from the outside and predicting, you actually go on to, into, the, into particular cases, trying to understand on the ground what the institutional details are, what the cultural factors are, and then you only try to predict from within the case what you think the structure of the game, uh, the kind of outcomes it will lead to. So it's, it's, it's an argument for kind of deep level sort of ethnography almost in trying to understand um, the way these kind of game structures play out. Right, so there is uh, quite a bit of uh, commonality and intersection between the, the method of analytical uh, narratives and the way in which Bloomington School of Commons um, research is supposed to work. But there's also fundamental differences. Um, and the way, I mean, so if you think about deductive, you know, uh, you know a, a, a research that is driven by an a priori theoretical framework mm -hmm. versus inductive, which is driven entirely 
by what you actually see uh, in your field research. There's also a third option, which is of abductive research. And I would put the workshop research in that frame of abductive research mm -hmm. so that um, it actually lends itself to sort of being used in both deductive or predominantly deductive ways or predominantly inductive ways. Mm -hmm. But it, it actually acts as that abductive bridge between the two. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that we need to do more methodological work to sort of, you know, hone those uh, tools of abductive research in the commons. Because I think it is extremely important to consider that there are these big ticket um, questions that everybody should think about, right? So you can't just go in the field and start sort of, you know, um, looking at all kinds of things. I mean, of course, that's, that will produce certain kinds of outcomes that may be of interest to many of us. But um, the, the process of accumulation of knowledge works best when we build on pre-existing theories and sort of, you know, uh, pinch and, uh, you know, kind of work, uh, craft these theories at the margins to try and refine the theories in ways that also contribute to the accumulated uh, stock of knowledge uh, and science in a sense. Okay, that's, that, that, that's great. Um, okay, well, let's, let's move on um, maybe to talk a little bit more about um, the issue of power in the, the Austrians framework and what, what role it does play and, and what role it doesn't play and, and you know, whether, whether they have their understanding of, of, um, of power uh, correct. So in your more critical remarks, mm -hmm. you, you made the case that, you know, the Austrians arguably don't pay enough attention to power relations at multiple sort of levels, that you think this is an underdeveloped aspect of the Bloomington School's work. Now, some people would find that quite surprising in the sense that they might argue that power, if we understand that to be um, the incentive structures that are created for agents within interacting sets of rules at different sorts of levels are fundamental to the, to the Ostrom's approach. So if you take some of the examples that Lynn Ostrom talks about where centralized imposition of state property or private property has had negative consequences, it seems that those consequences wouldn't have arisen if it hadn't been for the fact that the higher level actors had the power to impose particular types of solutions on lower level actors. So an example like that would seem to suggest that power is at the heart of the, the Ostrom's approach. So would you agree with that? Or, or, or do you think it's just that it's more complicated than that? This, this is a fantastic question. Um, and again, your framing um, sort of implies in very instructive ways, two different aspects of power in institutional analysis that are worth uh, unpacking a little. First, uh, let's take this concept of power understood as the incentive structure created by interacting sets of rules and relationships, as you put it. Analytically speaking, incentive structures are meant to steer individual human behavior, right? I mean, that this is from within 
the core tenets of uh, institutional economics, um, mm -hmm. so as to say. However, if, if you know, the, the expectations that incentive structures steer human behavior is based on um, certain assumptions about autonomous individual behavior. And these assumptions ignore how inequalities of race, caste, class, gender, and other types of social cultural inequalities inhibit the exercise of autonomous decision-making uh, on the part of some of the individuals or groups of individuals. So, so studying the incentive structures focused specifically on commons governance tells us little about how these other extraneous uh, or external factors such as you know, race, caste, class, gender, uh, and, and the, the imperatives that are linked to these identities or these structures shape individual behaviors uh, in all kinds of settings, including in commons, right? So, so um, power relations are of course embedded within incentive structures, but you mm -hmm. cannot take it for granted that because we study incentive structures, we will study these other factors. And as you can imagine, there are many, 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 in fact, most of the common studies um, as so the, the editors of the International Journal of the Commons, they did a uh, extensive uh, bibliographic analysis of all of the commons research that has been published over the years in that journal. And they found that only in few cases, things such as inequality, race, power were actually mentioned in uh, the commons scholarship, right? So it's, it's when you, uh, if we think about the sort of, you know, uh, empirical statistical methods, if you don't include a variable in your analysis, that's an omitted variable bias, right? Which means that you can't tell how that variable influenced the outcome that you're looking at. And so this work um, that I did um, uh, on sort of, you know, trying to understand how these, um, these factors of race, caste, caste, race, class, gender, and other types of social inequalities um, influence um, individual behavior, this is at the micro level, right? So I've developed this micro argument in an article that I published in 2016 uh, in the Journal of Theoretical Politics. In Ostrom speak, I argue in that article that individual behavior should be studied within the context of interlinked action arenas. So you can, you, you know, in most common parlance of the uh, workshop scholarship, you think of you know, common um, pool resource management or commons governance as being shaped by an action arena where you have individuals, you have the resource, and you have the various kinds of interactions between different individuals and actors vis-a-vis -vis the resource, right? So that's sort of one action arena, you know, the arena within which action takes place vis-a-vis -vis the, the particular uh, set of common resources. Now, I've argued that how these individuals behave in that commons action arena will also be shaped by the other kinds of social and cultural relations that individuals have in other action arenas, such as social, you know, even if you think about family, in cultures where wife is always supposed to defer to the husband on anything and everything, you know, if both wife and husband are also part of the commons action arena, 
that behavior in those common settings cannot be understood from an autonomous decision-making framework because the wife's behavior will be based on how she's supposed to behave in a social setting where her husband is also present, right? Or if you have uh, caste relations, for example, um, you know, you would behave vis-a-vis the so-called upper caste people in a certain way which you wouldn't be able to predict or study if you were using the sort of the incentive structure frame of analysis and efforts. Can, can I just push you on this a little bit? Because it's, it's this is a really interesting point. So um, someone, I can imagine someone reacting to what you're saying, who is a kind of new institutionalist, and they would probably say, well, we would yeah. consider something like caste in our analysis in the sense of it's a sort of cultural variable which would feed into the kind of incentive structure that that people face um, that um, or relationships within a household between um, between men and women that they would understand that to be one of the factors that shape the incentive structure um, so it seems to me you're saying something beyond that yes I wonder if you could explain how you would respond to that kind of argument. That's great. And in fact, this is really the fundamental difference in, um, in how behavioralism is understood in mainstream political science mm-hmm. versus how the Ostrom uh, and workshoppers practice their behavioralism. So their argument would be to restate what you said. And I think because this is so um, you know, important and sometimes um, you know, those who are not familiar with these debates may not have fully understood what you said. So the behavioralists in mainstream economics and political science would say that the way an individual behaves already factors in all of those extraneous considerations, right? So it doesn't matter if you study those 10 or different 15 factors or not, as long as you are correctly capturing the behavior you know, those factors are already accounted for. So you, need, you don't need to study them separately, right? So this goes mm-hmm. along with your earlier uh, argument that some workshoppers have argued that power is already inherent in how the rules are yeah. framed and, and practiced. But the problem is, and in, in, in fact, um, this actually also speaks to a broader debate in political economy more broadly, going beyond the debates of common sense so forth where the political economists who have acknowledged the importance of these factors and they have sort of variabilized these different things, caste, gender, right? They have still not been able to grapple with how these things function in practice in part because this is not a situation where one plus one becomes two, right? So mm-hmm. there's there's an idea that you know um, if we if we want to understand the political economy of any kind, including the political economy of commons, we need to adopt a configurational approach to these things, right? So and 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 I think the scholars who have made arguments about intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Right? They have actually shown how intersectionality is different, for example, from simply putting in two variables and then using an uh, interaction term in, in the statistical analysis. Right, Because they argue that what is at stake in intersectionality is not 
just the presence of two different factors. But how the interactions of two factors such as race and gender produce patterns of privileges and disadvantages in the, in the same setting, right? So in interaction of gender and, and race provide certain privileges to certain individuals, including white women, for example, and that incentive structure and the way in which they are able to exercise autonomous um, decision-making and behavior is fundamentally different from intersectionality at the lower end of marginalization, where intersectionality acts to prevent autonomous behavior and autonomous decision-making, right? And so, um, so the, you know, the same interaction of two factors has remarkably different effects for different groups within the same. And this is methodologically, you cannot account for this by sort of, you know, accounting for uh, the interaction terms partly because, you know, there are other factors that come into play. And so this becomes like an indefinite fight to sort of include triple interaction and, 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 and so forth. The last point I will make on this is that, and this is actually the core argument of the, the Journal of Theoretical Politics uh, article that I cited earlier, which is that when you don't account for these power relations, the weaker powerless individuals within a community, they agree to contribute to collective action because they fear the wrath of the powerful village leaders, right? So they are doing something out of implied coercion in a situation, but we are studying their behavior as a positive contribution to collective. As if it's a bottom-up formation. Yeah. Right? This is a bottom-up formation yeah. and it has, you know, you have to get into what drives behavior. The same behavior can have different drivers, you know, and, and this is something that has been acknowledged by, by the, the phrase equifinality so that you can so, have remarkably different drivers of the same outcomes. Yeah. So, so does this require, though, um, a different type of methodological approach? So if you're going to understand how the kind of power relations you're referring to um, affect outcomes, and also perhaps also the way that we evaluate them, uh -huh. um, you need to adopt what sounds to me much more like, I guess I would call it a hermeneutic, kind of an approach where you're actually trying to understand the deep meanings that are attributed to um, certain performances or the nature of institutions in particular communities. So you're going to try to understand what does caste mean in a particular situation to particular sorts of actors, rather than having the sort of theorists from outside imposing their categories on these, these sets of actors. I. I guess so, but one fundamental difference here is that, you know, the, the interpretivist uh, method and the hermeneutics, it's sort of a, you know, sort of um, a free for all um, kind of um, approach where you can't claim authenticity for any one particular kind of interpretation. Your interpretation is always considered to be subjective and, this kind, you know, one type of interpretation is equally valid as opposed to an, another kind of interpretation of the same situation, which, which may even be contradictory, right? So taking the same example, a hermeneutics framework would say that 
my argument that collective action in that particular setting is driven by coercive relationships is equally valid compared to another argument where somebody is claiming that you know we ought to recognize the agency of the person and this is an autonomous uh, decision making mm. where i would dif- differ from that approach is to argue that no social and political political context have very particular meanings you you know in in those situations these two arguments are not equally valid if you take a historically grounded and um locally informed understanding of how these factors of caste class race and gender operate there's one particular right interpretation of of those uh, interactions rather than right so so that's the difference uh, yeah I, I, actually, right. i actually think i mean I, i don't know whether you've seen it there's an interesting book by uh, mark mark bevere he has a book out on um uh with um jason blakely it's called interpretive social science and he, he i mean he he puts a different view forward he would say that interpretivism is compatible with the idea of some element of of objective truth in the sense that it's all about telling stories but some stories are more convincing than others there are certain stories that um are more plausible that they the concepts they they use don't face as many anomalies for example as other types of stories and that you arrive at a kind of I guess really the term to use would be an intersubjective judgment of which stories are more convincing. So it, interpretivism doesn't have to mean a sort of free for all that you know one meaning any one meaning is as good as any other. Sure. And I think that's a, that's a very important argument the with the two sort of caveats. One um you know I, in I I would actually use some sort of a truth claim uh, frame as opposed to the convincing frame. right and this is i think this is you know now we are going way beyond the comic but i think these are all important discussions this is where the ways in which uh, a scholar's standing as a a citizen as uh, who somebody who's deeply familiar with a particular setting and is politically engaged in certain ways comes into play right so you could be an outsider who has done 10 years of field research in one particular site then i would take your interpretation as more closer to truth claims compared to another scholar who came yesterday and who's trying to make a similar kind of or mm. a different kind of truth claim mm. right so mm. that's one part second is that you know uh, even between people who are who have had long term engagements with the same sites if somebody is engaged with a particular site and a particular research process as a citizen who has a political stake in that particular context that interpretation needs to be understood differently not necessarily biased right because mm-hmm. every research conclusion has certain kinds of implications normative undertones and normative implications right and so which of those normative undertones and which of those normative implications you pick or you leave out basically depends on the kind of stakes that you have right so i would argue that i think that's and i'll i look forward to actually reading the book uh, by mark paver um i think that's a, that's a valid way of thinking about it and i think it's a very it's methodologically very rich approach to thinking about and sort of engaging with uh, this this notion of public facing scholarship right publicly engaged scholarship uh, and and with the global you know with the idea of global sort of citizenship 
we have, um, you know, I think this is a very productive avenue for further research. Right, great. So let's actually moving on on a similar sort of theme and talking about maybe thinking, carrying on with this discussion about thinking about power in different ways. So one of the things I took from your presentation was that when we're looking at some of these sort of higher level contextual factors that affect the nature of some of the commons problems. Um, you spoke about the importance of discourse as part of the sort of set of power relations that we, we need to be trying to understand. And I, I wonder if you could say what you understand by the term discourse in an institutional, institutional analysis. So is it, how does it differ from, Douglas North has this idea of um, shared mental models, of there being sort of shared cognitive frames between actors that then can condition the sort of incentive structures that people perceive. Are you using discourse in that sort of way, or are you using more in a way that somebody like Foucault would have spoken of it perhaps where certain kinds of discursive frames or formations actually affect the positionality of actors. So they say something about who is speaking or the authority of different sorts of agents in particular sorts of settings. I wonder if you could say something about what your understanding of discourse is. Sure, so as, as, as I see it, uh, these, are, these concepts differ in some fundamental ways. Although I can clearly see how, you know, in many settings, the two can sort of converge, uh, at least in terms of how they relate to one another. Now, mental models are the ways of thinking that individuals use to inform their own decision-making or behavior. Or mental models some, is something that individuals use to understand other people's thinking and behavior on certain things, right? And so if we think about how mental models shape what individuals say, you know, mental models do shape the kind of discourses that different individuals make or believe in and so forth. But the, the notion of discourses is sort of, you know, this, that the other side of this thing, which is that discourses are a set of interrelated arguments that are meant to be, they have a public purpose in a sense, right? They are meant to be communicated or articulated publicly, often with the goal of actually shaping public thinking or behavior in certain ways. So, so for example, um, in, in the current context, there's an entire discourse around so-called nature-based solutions. So this I would call as, as a discourse, which has often been tied to community-based natural resource management and to the advocacy of indigenous rights and so forth. However, a deeper scrutiny would reveal that the popularity of natural uh, nature-based solutions is actually a manifestation of the kind of power that global elite wield in shaping public understanding of, of, of a particular topic. So I would argue that nature-based solutions emerges out of a certain kind of uh, mental model or set of mental, mental models, but it, it's in, in, it, in its public existence it has become a sort of discourse or a narrative. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it sounds quite similar, actually, the way you describe that, though, it sounds more like, a bit more like um, Foucault's ideas about power knowledge, that you actually have 
um, agents who have a set of mental models, but they also use their political power to, in effect, impose certain interpretations in certain situations. So Absolutely. That kind of idea. Yes. So it's, it's closer to the Foucauldian um, sense of, of discourse, but it does take seriously, I mean, in the way in which we study it, um, it does account for those different types of mental models. Yeah. Okay. That's, 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 that's really interesting. Um, so if we move on a, a little bit now to, towards the end of your presentation, um, you spoke really quite passionately, I, I think, about why you think that um, when it comes to thinking about climate change, th there are profound limitations to the, the, the Ostrom's approach. And partly that was following, I think, from some of the things you were saying about power um, at the global level. Um, and you also seem to be implying that this is a case where you can't leave this to sort of some form of polycentric uh, set of arrangements to emerge from the ground up that you do need to have quite a lot of top-down control. Right. And I wonder if you could just speak a little bit to, I was thinking when you gave that, that, that presentation of you debating Ellen Ostrom, because, you know, she, she wrote a paper for the World Bank, I think it was in about 2009, which was really arguing that, okay, maybe there's some necessity to have a, a global level approach to climate change, but she, on the one hand, seemed deeply skeptical about whether you would actually get such a global response, given the nature of the collective action problems involved. And B, she also seemed very skeptical about whether it would be effective for some of the same reasons that she was critical of centralizing schemes in other, other cases. So. I wonder if we can think of carrying on your argument with Ellen Rostrum there about why it is that you do think, um, you know, why do you did, why do you argue against her in effect in this case? <laughs> so I'll, I'll come back to this, uh, whether this is against her or not. It will sort of depend on how we, we negotiate this discussion. Yeah. But I think it relates to uh, is the second part of your earlier question on power that I, I failed to sort of address. So I think it's 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 a good sort of moment to bring that in, and there you said that the diagnosis of the failure of centralized solutions to commons dilemmas lie in the capacity of higher level actors to impose solutions on lower level actors. Right now, climate change and climate crisis, as we now um, use the, the the more accurate vocabulary, is actually a result of the ability of the powerful political and economic elites um, to impose certain kinds of externalities on the rest of humanity, right, on the majority mm -hmm. populations. So in that sense, I think it's, it's obviously a reflection of power that um, central actors have, the, the powerful global actors have imposed a climate crisis uh, on, the, on the rest of the humanity. Now, the commons community has conventionally argued that when you have these centralized actors wanting to impose their control on the commons, the solution is to actually um, sort of do decentralized, right? decentralized decision-making power and authority to local users. So, you know, that cuts in so many different ways. One, of course, um, you know, if we only think about the top-down and bottom-up in terms of negative uh, power on the top-down side and positive power on the bottom-up side, I, I think we miss the argument about democracy, 
right? We miss the we miss the fact that there are certain kinds of societal level failures and the need to provide societal level public goods that can only be accomplished by higher level state action, if you will. Right? So there's a fundamental theoretical argument that comes from within institutional economics that requires higher level political action for the provision of public goods that markets cannot provide. And that, you know, because local actors are too, um, they don't have jurisdiction over higher scale uh, landscapes and, 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 and geographies where these outcomes unfold, you know, local community cannot impose taxes on a fossil fuel corporation, which is polluting their local commons, right? So that's one part of it that we, I think uh, th this has been the mistake. And this is again, you know, what we refer to as analytical slippage between the critique of the centralized imposition and the advocacy of local uh, governance. Both of them were valid, but they intersect in all sorts of ways. So if, so in, in the 2010 paper that uh, Lynn wrote for um, global environmental change, I think, Lynn recognized and used the phrase local tyrannies, right? And she said, if we leave it, leave everything to the locals, it will lead to local tyrannies. The, the other side of that argument is that climate change is actually, in, in a way, it's also a product of those kinds of local freedoms. Everybody was free to pollute as much as they could, right? Now, the problem is that that process unfolds both at the individual level, but also at the global level. So you have nine or 10 corporations the uh, you know the the research that uh, climate accountability uh, scorecard that um, the union for concerned scientists have come up with they show that a majority a good chunk of the historically accumulated stock of greenhouse gases responsible for climate crisis has come from a handful of corporations fossil fuel corporations who have benefited from that business besides they have actually orchestrated a, a long-running multi-decadal process of climate denialism. They were able to recruit quote-unquote scientists to sing their song of climate denialism, right? So all of these examples tell us that there's a fundamental structural problem that emerged from the imbalances of power and concentration of power in the hands of powerful global political and economic elites, powerful national uh, political and economic elites, right? So it's important to fix their behavior to address the ongoing climate crisis, right? And that fixing their behavior will not happen through community-based approaches or local-based yeah. approaches, right? So that was the argument I was trying to make. I wasn't arguing <coughs> a black and white sort of, you know, sort of, my argument about the need for these specific structural reforms did not mean that we don't need long-term polycentric governance that will steer our collective behaviors on you know, food consumption, lying around the world, or any of the energy intensive lifestyles. We have to have a transnational mass movement that can only be triggered through sort of a polycentric social cultural campaign, so as to say.
right? So we need. No, I mean, I think, I think that's 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 a very interesting formulation, and um, I think so. I think it's a very persuasive point to say one way of looking at climate change is if um, at the global level there's a kind of vacuum where nobody is doing anything and that's the, the view of it as a collective action problem in a sense what you're saying is there already are actually power structures there that are affecting people uh, and that's where the focus of attention at least in part should be i think um you know we got into a little bit of this in in, in the discussion following your, your talk i think the issue is if you accept if part of your argument is that those powerful actors are in place what is to stop effectively a version of a sort of regulated capture arising if you try to create structures at the global level to address the problem? So why wouldn't those agents who are in power on your account um, usurp or get round or, or seek to control the very kind of reform process that you're, you're referring to? So obviously there's an argument that, well, you need a functioning democracy to have to stop that from happening. But the issue is precisely that at the global level, there isn't such a structure. And we don't necessarily know what mechanisms or what processes will be required to arrive at one. So that, that was where I felt the tension was, where you got some of the pushback against your, your argument. Right, so the, well, the good thing is that we actually have, by now we have, empirical evidence uh, about these competing arguments and what effects they have on climate change per se, for example. So um, let me sort of, you know, let, let us go back to the history of the evolution of the uh, global climate mitigation, global climate governance systems uh, under the, um, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change before or around the time when Kyoto Protocol was being debated, Brazil had a proposal. They brought in a proposal um, to sort of argue for establishing a global fund that will be populated by the penalties that emitters would pay into this global fund. Mm -hmm. And this was exactly the argument that was used by the US delegation and even many scholars that you know, such a sense, and this was like you know, um, mid nineties, right, nineteen ninety five or something like that. And so what we did, we actually rejected that centralized solution, right, and we went along with the so-called polycentric approaches, where you know there was like, okay, let's do offsets. Every state, every city will do their own offsets. We will retrofit the buildings so urban governance municipal bodies will do certain things, industries will do their own thing, then there's cities for 40 network and they will motivate the cities to act and all of that. And I think, I mean, if, if needed, we can actually pull together the empirical evidence about the complete inefficacy of any of these so-called, and I, I, I need to actually come back to this notion of polycentric because I think it's been used again, you know, in, in a sort of glib ways that do not do justice to the way it yeah. was actually intended to be used. Yeah. But, but the evidence that we have on the, the extremely limited success of these polycentric approaches that we adopted at least since the 2007 Bali conference, 
you know bali conference was the where the the setting where the dominance of market based solutions to climate crisis was accepted and it was institutionalized in the form of you know acceptance of the offsets there was going to be a um, climate um, you know the um, the stock market of climate emissions right those are kind of um, you know all kinds of institutional arrangements the forest based carbon uh, sequestration programs and the red plus program so all of that was initiated and institutionalized in 2007 the evidence that we have on all of those kinds of market based climate solutions is that they produced fictitious or uh, spurious uh, kind of emission records and certifications they created dispossessions these so called green grabs or um, you know um, grabbed commons situation where commons were grabbed in the name of doing carbon sequestration and the funny thing is and i think this is where we really see how the structuralist and the uh, the bottom up approaches come together is that in many cases programs such as red plus were justified and in many ways were sort of tied to community based management so you said mm -hmm. right the argument was that we will bring in these user groups and they will then be able to benefit from red plus and so forth and and the tragedy is that the critique of red plus have mostly been from the radical left and the critical social science who made this about a critique of the markets now obviously markets fail here because they were expected to fail if you go by the theory of how markets work right because this is not a setting where you would expect free markets to operate the but the more fundamental problem was a political problem that governments who got these monies from world bank and you know un uh, un environmental program and other kinds of uh, global environmental facility they captured these resources so this this structural top down capture happened precisely in the so called bottom up polycentric yeah. arrangements right and i would argue that this happened because they were not truly polycentric mm -hmm. right they were polycentric in their narratives in their discourses but they were very top down in the mm -hmm. way in which they were designed and enforced you had and you have an entire industry of consultants and experts who consume enormous amount of this kind of offset money that should have been going to these community based groups right so i would argue personally i would never oppose these kinds of market based arrangements if you actually ensure that the resources actually you know uh, percolated down to the, these community based groups so i think there is a very strong argument now both uh, based on the empirical evidence that we have for past 20 years of failed climate action and climate governance but as well as on the new theoretical developments that have happened since 2010 to argue that we need to understand climate crisis and many of these kinds of wicked problems in global environment and development fields as multi scale complex problems that are shaped in very fundamental ways by these differences of power and 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 factors of inequality so 
you know, to tie it back to the, the development of the work that has um, taken power and inequality seriously and has, has sought to bring those factors explicitly into institutional analysis and an analysis of the commons governance. In um, 2019, in collaboration with Lauren McLean and Gustavo Garcia Lopez, we published a special issue of world development um, by the title of Rethinking uh, Institutions and Power in the Shadows of Neoliberal um, World on Shadows of Neoliberalism. In, in that special issue and the introductory article to that special issue, we propose a power in institutions matrix. So what we do in the matrix is that we take different forms of power uh, as argued by political scientists and other theorists of power. So, you know, you have things such as agenda power, right? Who decides what kind of questions are taken up in the public sphere? Yeah. Then you have the discursive or narrative power, right? So you, who is defining what is meant by nature-based solutions? But then you also have the material power, which shapes how these narratives are actually translated into practical uh, operational guidelines and practical programs. So those are the different forms of power. And then on the, on the y-axis, we took the power over, which is the sense of coercive use of power and power two, which is the sense that, you know, there's a bottom up process of creating power. And so in this power matrix, we bring together different forms of power and different scales of institutional design and functioning to argue that scholars of institutional analysis and scholars of commons can actually account for power in a way that goes along very well with you know, the IAD framework or the commons design principle. And we can retain, and this is the last point I'll make on this, which is that, you know, uh, for example, we explained the concept of co-option, right? Co-option is often thought of as a negative uh, yeah. thing, right? So powerful actors co-opt the powerless actors, but we put co-option right at the intersection of power over and power two. And we actually include it in power two because only by creating incentives for power, powerless people, powerful actors get things done, right? So if you have situations of gross inequality and po poverty at local level, you can always pay off some, some things or you know, a little bit to make poor people behave in certain ways. But that's not necessarily bottom up, right? But in a way, that is bottom. And I think that's where the, the dilemma of the sort of the relationship between structure and agency need to be taken seriously from both ends without excluding one or the other. And, and so that was my whole argument about how we need to think about the, the governance of climate, uh, climate crisis. Well, well, that's fantastic. I mean, please do, if you could please send me the link to that uh, paper, the world development issue, and um, I'd love to publicize that on our website, actually, because I think that sounds like a fascinating example, actually, of bringing together all of the themes that we've been talking about in this in this discussion between the two of us today. And um, we've got the G7 meeting going on in the UK, actually, this weekend that we're recording. Uh -huh. So um, obviously, a lot of the issues that you're talking about are relevant to some of the things that they're discussing there so 
really all I want to say, Prakash, is uh, thank you very much for such a, a fascinating discussion. Um, I've really enjoyed it and um, I hope you have and I hope we can have you back again at some point in the not too distant future to carry on the, the conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. This was, this was such a privilege and, and such a wonderful conversation. As, and as, as I mentioned, and I, I think um, I want to sort of uh, highlight again how the way you framed some of these questions uh, was so productive and, and we, we were able to get into uh, these conversations. Uh, so yeah, thanks for having me and yeah, look forward to our future conversations as well. Thank you very much.